Hello, and welcome to We Heard Wonders, the music podcast playing happy songs for happy people. And I'm feeling pretty happy, Andrew. How about you? Oh, deliriously happy. <laughs> it's the holidays. What? And we're um, back after a week off as well. A week off, yeah. A week where basically um, we had some things trying to fall into place, didn't exactly fall into place as we needed them to. And then we were both just absolutely knackered as well, I think. So um, we decided to take yeah. an, an impromptu podcast uh, holiday. Yeah, so apologies if you were waiting for the episode last week, but hopefully this one will more than make up for it. Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, this pretty much is the podcast we were aiming to get out last week, but we just had some scheduling uh, difficulties and all that sort of stuff, as, as happens. Um, so yeah, pretty exciting podcast this week. Before we get into it, let's just... Uh, Introduce ourselves after you, kind sir. Thank you. Yeah. My name's Andrew. I buy records and write about them on Instagram at kidagh86. Uh, my name's Ian. I'm a guitarist in Glasgow band The Deadline Shakes, and you can find us on all the social medias at Deadline Shakes. But I'd particularly like to, you to look us up on Instagram and on Bandcamp, um, where you can pre-save and pre-order our new record, Documentaries, which is out late in November. So, yes, indeed. so, 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 so today, exciting stuff. And since you did all the, all the work, uh, reeling in this enormous fish, I'm going to just let you have the pleasure of explaining what we're doing today. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, this week we are really pleased to welcome um, Stuart Braithwaite onto the show, um, a real legend on the Scottish music scene, guitarist, singer-songwriter, founding member of Mogwai. And uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of indie music, you don't really get much bigger than Mogwai no. in Scotland, do you? You don't really, not really. And a bloody lovely chap as well, he was really nice. And um, we uh, asked him for a certain amount of his time and, and he was willing to, to give of it and all that sort of stuff. Busy guy as well at the moment because he's obviously releasing his, his new book. That's right, yep. So his memoir came out uh, a few weeks ago now. And um, yeah, it's really a fantastic read. You know, kind of funny... Uh, it, very real as well. You kind of you, you kind of read it in his voice, which is which is always fun, and uh, just uh, so many brilliant stories about his life in music, and he's just played and recorded with so many of his heroes and so many you know, key figures in alternative uh, rock as well. So yeah, just a really cool person to to chat to. Yeah, it was it was. It was a, it was a kind of I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we were starstruck or anything like that, but it was a bit like uh, it was super cool. I mean, we've had so many cracking guests on before, but I would I would think we'd have to say Stuart is Stuart is kind of Glaswegian Scottish rock royalty, really, isn't he? Um, if you if you want to look at it that way, so I guess the best thing we could probably do is just get straight to the interview and straight into Stuart and his own words. Um, but we're going to play a bit of Mogwai to kick us off. Yes, yeah, we're going to hear a track from uh, the aforementioned Happy Songs for Happy People and it's Hunted by a Freak.
So that was purveyors of ambient hard with hard bits Mogwai there and their track Hunted by a Freak. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome singer, songwriter, guitarist and founding member of Mogwai, Stuart Braithwaite, onto the show. Stuart, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Cheers, man. Yeah. And we can uh, now add a published offer to that list as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, because... I'm going to be... I'm going to be going with that all the time because that sounds like the brainiest one. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we can we can do that because uh, your book, uh, Spaceships Over Glasgow, Mogwai Mayhem and Misspent Youth was released at the end of September. Um, how does it feel to have the book out and how have you felt towards the, the kind of general response towards the book as well? Been really, I've been really, and this sounds like the kind of thing everyone says, but I've been really genuinely taken aback by how nice everyone's been about the book. Because it's, it's something I'd never done before. So I kind of knew that people who are obsessed with Mogwai would probably be kind of interested in it because it's got like some details that most people wouldn't know about old recordings or whatever. But mm-hmm. everyone's just been really nice about it. It's really good. It's kind of, um, I quite like the fact it's kind of, it's kind of made my big sister and a minor celebrity as well, which is uh, <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she she is a kind of hero of the, especially at the start of the book with the with the formative uh, gigs that you go to. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, I just love your kind of enthusiasm and passion uh, in those kind of early chapters when you're talking about those early shows. And uh, time and time again, it's it's about the kind of the physical um, impact that these uh, performances are having on you, whether it be uh, My Bloody Valentine or the Mary Chain or Sonic Youth. Um, what is it about that type of sonic assault that, that kind of appealed to you so much, do you think? I don't know. I guess it was just something new because I, I'd, I'd been listening to music for um, quite a while. I was becoming a big music fan, but I guess the just experience of hearing music live and it kind of shaking your body just had a big impression on me. So I, I think that was it really. And I, I think a lot of the bands I saw they were the best ones were also the loudest ones, which I, I don't th- I don't think they were brilliant just because they were loud, but I think that that was something that was in common with quite a lot of the music I got into when I was a, a young teenager. Yeah, I mean, and seeing, seeing Nirvana at different stages in their trajectory must have been pretty extraordinary. Well, I mean, it was great at the time, but to be honest, it's only really... In reflection, there it seems as big a deal. They were just another really great band, you know. And obviously, Kurt Cobain died far too young, so I, I guess that's changed the. It's obviously made the amount of people that actually got to see them a lot smaller, but also the 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 sort of cultural legacy of the band has just got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. You know, they were a genuinely kind of like era defining band. But at the time, I probably went to see. Loads of, ba- loads of gigs that month and they were just another good good band I saw but yeah in in, in reflection it's such a it's, it, it, I'm so lucky to have seen them it, it's funny I was doing I've been out doing loads of sort of book events and I did one and the the guy interviewing me from the bookshop was born in 1998 and it's kind of when you meet people like that and you realise how lucky you are to have been around when certain things happened and um yeah, they were very good, very good band. He might be saying something like he was really lucky to see like Busted or something like that, or McFly or something. 
Maybe. Well, you know what? You know what? He'll be seeing. He'll be. He'll be seeing some brilliant bands when I'm in the ground. So uh, <laughs> probably, he's probably he's probably going to have the last laugh. <laughs> uh, you talked about the kind of physical experience of of those uh, gigs. Kind of makes sense to me when I think about your own music and going to see uh, your own shows. Uh, one of my kind of favourite things to do is uh, just kind of observe the crowd at certain moments during your gigs. You know, that kind of moment in like headed when it goes from kind of deathly silence to like this kind of thunderous noise. Um, is that something that you're trying to trying to um, you know get from the audience? That that kind of idea of trying to make them feel something. Is that something that, yeah. that's always yeah. in your mind? I think dynamics was always a big thing with our band and I think we, we got it from bands like Nirvana. It's a good way of kind of creating tension with music, but yeah, we de- we definitely kind of calmed it a wee bit on that after the first record, but yeah, we still play those songs because, as you say, it's fun watching folk get a fright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a kind of jump scare almost. Um, I totally, it's, it's, yeah, it's the, the Conjuring series of uh, instrumental uh, rock music. And, uh, even from the from the get go, you just wanted to kind of play as loud as possible. Do you have any sense what what your loudest gig was? There's one gig where you talk about it going up to 132 decibels, not far off the volume made by a jet engine in an aeroplane. Yeah, um, that was very loud. That was very loud. I mean, I, I think around about that time we were really obsessed with it. So I, I mean, I, I I couldn't tell you what was the loudest, but there was a lot of things like we played. Um, Played Brixton Academy and like the roof started coming in, like or the ceiling started. <laughs> and I remember we played this place in Chicago, and it's kind of a bit of a I don't know what the word is like, not not the shiniest newest venue. And like when when we were sound checking, like bits of like, dead birds kind of come out of the the, the, <laughs> oh the rafters above the stage and all that. Jeez, oh. Yeah, that, that was yeah. That kind of brings it back to the conjuring thing. But well, I don't know what the very loudest one was. Hopefully, that's in the future. <laughs> and so many of those formative gigs uh, took place at the Barrowlands, um, which I've heard you describe as your spiritual home. Um, what is what is it about that venue that that is so special? Do you think? Because because we we totally agree with you. We we just. You know, I just love the place. But yeah, I love it. Would, yeah. Can you can you put your finger on what it is that makes it so special? Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is the kind of the memories it holds, which I'm sure is the same for you guys. You just I've just seen some really special gigs there, but I actually think just in a really boring technical level, it's a brilliant room. You know, you can see from pretty much everywhere in the room, even me at five foot five, and uh, it, it sounds great. And it, there's something about it. I think it, it always feels like an occasion there. It continues, it continues to be a special place. Right. Um, as part of this, we asked you to select some uh, music for us. And your first selection is Jumping Someone Else's Train by The Cure. Someone else is trying 
Um, and you talk a lot about the cure in the book. Uh, I do. It's your first gig at 13, is that right? Yeah, they were the first band I went to see, but the, this song's an older single, probably from, from the late 70s. But um, I think the first Cure record I got into, which would have actually been a tape, was the, the singles album, Standing on the Beach, which had um, the B-sides on the other side of the tape. And I just really, really, really love this song. So, and, and it's not like a big famous hit that they always play or anything. So, yeah, I thought... Thought maybe some of the some of the folk listening might not have heard it, which I like the idea of too. So yeah, this is a a really good song, and also it's kind of like an anti anti fashion kind of song, which I think kind of sums up the Cure as well, because they've always just kind of done their own thing and not worried too much about other folk. Yeah, I really like what you talked about in the book about uh, their music kind of spanning the full spectrum of emotions yeah. uh, the, 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 especially those that you feel when you're a teenager I, I yeah. find that really persuasive as, as an argument yeah I, I think I think they've kind of they go from real extremes don't they like a lot of the music is quite is, is quite dour I suppose would be the Scottish word for it but um, some of it's also really euphoric and really sad but loads of it's really romantic yeah they, I think they're the perfect teenage band yeah yeah, uh, I understand the initial premise for the book was to tell the story through uh, the story of these gigs, um, yeah. and then it kind of opened out. Was there a particular section in the book that you wrote that kind of presented that to you that you could maybe widen the scope a little bit? Well, you know what, it's, it's actually almost the other way around. There was a few gigs that I went to write about, and I genuinely couldn't remember much about them. I was just like, "Oh man, how am I going to do this?" Because I know this is one of the most important gigs I've ever seen, but that's it. So I kind of, after a while, I kind of, I still, I wanted to mention all of the gigs that I originally had in my list are in the book, but some of them are just a couple of sentences. And I realised that this stuff, the gigs are great. And, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was because of how much I missed them and that I had time to do it because I wasn't playing any. Um, but it's it's almost the stuff that happens before and after that yeah. kind of is 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 more interesting, you know. Like I've seen some really really brilliant gigs, but so so have loads of people. But everyone's got different experiences of who they met and what's happened in their life. And I guess the fact that um, I and it's almost a bit of a cliche. I almost kind of lived the dream to kind of like that be my what I do all the time is go and play gigs um, and how, how that happened is almost more interesting than whatever, how good Jane's Addiction were at the Barlands or <laughs> No, I think good, that's, that's absolutely fair. You know? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so alongside going to see music, you, you obviously started playing uh, your own and a lot of the, your early shows centred around nights put on by Alex Kapranis uh, yeah. at night. Uh, the 13th note yeah. um, I've heard you say that a lot of the, the acts in that kind of small alternative Glasgow scene they did, maybe didn't necessarily share the same sound but they shared a certain attitude um, would you be able to kind of d describe what that attitude was? Um, I think it was it, it was quite a, a sort of a DIY attitude but also like just a sort of just a, a way of making music and just 
almost with no expectation, if, if, if you know what I mean. It wasn't like a really ambitious kind of bunch of bands, even though some of them went on to do really, really, really amazingly well. I think it was, it was kind of quite a nice, innocent time for music in a, in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, and, and it's kind of, especially with Alex, the fact he's went on to become a genuine pop star is pretty amazing, you know, like... And uh, yeah, definitely a kind of DIY ethos. And um, I mean, you hear about bands kind of toiling away for years, but it seems to me, I might be wrong, but it seems to me like once you got the name Mogwai and once you kind of started uh, rehearsing quite regularly, it felt like quite a, you know, a quick, steady trajectory upwards. It felt like you were kind of moving to the next milestone quite quickly. And when, I, when I saw in the book that it was you know, the spring of two, uh, 1995 that you got the name, I was thinking, well, that's only two years till the, the first album kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of dramatic irony kind of thing. But yeah. um, did, did, it, did it feel quick, quick to you or was it um, you know, a long time coming? Um, no, it definitely wasn't a long time coming, but I don't know. When, you, when, you're, when you're a teenager, which we were, I, I guess just things happen and you don't really question why, you know, or I don't know, there's not a lot of sitting and sitting about talking about what might happen. It's more just like, or oh, whatever happens, you just, you just do it. So it's almost like, almost like when we, when we made an album, which was only, yeah, like you said, a couple of years after the band started and the records did really well. It was almost like, God, how, how did all this happen? It wasn't like, I don't know, like if an equivalent thing happened, well, I'm talking to my pals about like, oh, this is a really strange experience, and he's talking about other people's books and all that stuff. But it almost, almost with the band, it was like a kind of weird, mad teenage whirlwind rather than anything that we thought about. But I mean, you're right; it was, it was quick. We were lucky, you know. I think. I think luck has a lot to do with there's, there's a million bands. Yeah, and you talk about wanting to create something that's got, that's going to last, something with permanence, mm. um, and something that stands up to the music of the past as well. Yeah. Um, and very early in your career, you produced two pieces that I would say are not only signature tracks, but kind of genre-defining tracks, really. So like Herod and Mogwai Fear Satan. Um, did, did it feel special when you uh, created those two pieces? Did you know that they were, you know, really strong? I, I, I think we knew they were good, but I think especially with those two, because they were part of that album and we didn't have enough songs for the album, so we were probably kind of too busy freaking out that we didn't have enough songs to think about that a few of them were were, were really decent so no at, at the time in fact the whole thing around that album was just pretty stressful I don't think we really we really had a, a grip on the the job at hand at all <laughs> <laughs> Is there one Mogwai recording or record that you do feel you know you're most proud of and you do feel that it's one that's permanent and will last forever I mean, I'm, I'm I'm proud of a lot of them. I'm even proud of that one, even though it was it was hard work making it. But um, yeah, I probably think come, come on, die young, of the old ones, and actually, 
I'm still really happy with the last one as the love continues. So like those those two and it probably kind of stick out for me. Yeah, I was. I, I don't want to break the chronology because I know Andrew's working his way up here. But just when you mentioned the most recent record, obviously you you picked up the Say Award last year um, for that. How how was that experience? That was I, that was absolutely mental. I just literally had no expectation of us winning it. In fact, I think if you see the picture of me, I'm ready to leave. So I mean, I was just like, I was going to give whoever won it a good. I was going to give whoever won it a, a, a good clap, listen to the speech, and then bolt because it was in Edinburgh. And I was like, <laughs> I ended up having to go and do all the interviews and everything. But I, I had no expectation of of winning it. And um, same and same. I mean, the number one thing obviously kind of went over a week, but that wasn't anything with any design zone or idea that was going to happen. So. Yeah, it was a very surprising album in lots lots of ways. Yeah, you said someone someone interviewed you like immediately afterwards and you said, I wish I'd got steaming, which I think is a classic yeah. thing to say. <laughs> well, no, I, I totally did because I, I like I would have made a night of it, do you know what I mean? But yeah. I, 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 took, I took the car. <laughs> Rock and roll. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was actually going to ask you about Come On Die Young because uh, we're, we're massive Dave Fridman fans on the podcast. Oh, okay. um, yeah, and just all the work that he was making around that time, Desert Songs and Soft Bulletin and the stuff for you guys, uh, the Delgados and Low stuff as well, just amazing. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about the setup of his like, going out into the middle of nowhere. And mm-hmm. do, you, do you almost live with him there? Is that the idea? Uh, no, he he doesn't live in the studio. Um, he lives in a town about 15 minutes away. Right. Um, but... I mean, he's there almost all the time because you're recording, and especially with those old records from when we were when we were kids, he did he'd have to like kick us out of our beds because we'd been we'd been up all night drinking or whatever. Um, <laughs> so it kind of felt it kind of felt like, even though he's not that much older than us, it kind of felt like he was a dad. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it about him that that's so special as a producer? Um, he's he's not afraid of experimenting, you know. And like even things like you know his drums always sounds really weird. Yeah, he does. He doesn't do that after the fact. He records them like that because I think he's like, if you have an idea, you need to, you need to commit to it. Which you would never get any any producer really doing. That's like a total Dave Fredman quirk. Um, yeah, it's just really imaginative, and he's got a really good temperament. He's he's really good at getting us to play as well as we can. Um, yeah, really good guy. That's really scary sounding with the drums, actually, because if you don't like those, you know, two weeks later, you're kind of stuck with them. That sort of you're absolutely <laughs> you're absolutely stuck with them, which is why most of Dave's records have metal sounding drums. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way the one the one that uh, I remember he did that Slater Kenny record and like, oh yeah, I think he was like, "What do you want the record to sound like?" And they were like, "Go nuts!" And he went properly went nuts. And it's like a really, really, really extreme sounding record, um, but yeah, just yeah, he's 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 a brilliant guy, and yeah, really, really lucky to have worked with him so much. Yeah, uh, I mentioned the, the Delgados there. I understand you played quite a pivotal role in their uh, forthcoming reunion as well. Is that right? They they, they kind of agreed to get back together at your wedding. I think I read. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I mean, I just invited them to the wedding. I don't know. 
Yeah, but they actually asked me if they minded me that being mentioned in the press release. I was like, no, that's cool. That's really cool. Like, um, no, I'm really excited about seeing them play. I mean, that's another. They're playing the Barrowlands, aren't they? That'll be that'll be brilliant. So, yeah, I'm excited about seeing them play again. Brilliant. Uh, your second selection, you've picked uh, the Velvet Underground, and I heard her call my name. Um, I guess this would be an example of the Sonic Assault that we were talking about yeah. earlier. favorite velvet songs and i think it's it's definitely up there for my favorite guitar solo it's absolutely batshit so um yeah again again i was kind of like thinking no maybe some folk haven't heard this so if you haven't heard it enjoy and there's a story in the book about you turning down the opportunity to collaborate with lou reed yeah that's that's a big regret of mine um it just didn't seem the right time but yeah in retrospect that wasn't that wasn't a a good idea but what can you do you can't you can't you can't do everything right yeah. um the, i mean the book's incredibly funny as well and there's this amazing uh cast of supporting characters um i was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little about some of them so alan mcgregor aka mog yeah mog's mog's a good pal of mine um who he was in my sister's year at school and he yeah. He took me to quite a lot of early gigs. Had really bad influence on me, um, but in a in a brilliant way, kind of getting me to or encouraging me to do all sorts of things that I might not have done otherwise. But um, yeah, really good guy. Huge, huge music fan. Actually, Mog right now is doing a train tour around uh, Europe, going to see loads of Cure gigs. So he's he's not changed. And you've got Arab Strap as well, so every time that they kind of come on the scene, you kind of know that the debauchery is going to be turned up to eleven. Yeah, they were they were they were a handful back in the day. Um, in fact, I remember the first time. No, not the first time. I think I'd met them, but we went to see them play in a nightclub in Falkirk. It would have been like their second or third gig or something, and like two of them got thrown out. They they couldn't play because. I don't know what they did, but they got chucked out. <laughs> I don't remember. Everyone was just like, just acting as if this was totally normal. And I was like, that's nuts. I've never heard of the band actually getting thrown out their own gig before. <laughs> yeah, no, they were, they were, they were always up to hijinks. 
and just the levels of debauchery throughout the book, just not just the levels of it, but just the relentlessness of it. It just felt like kind of day after day, night after night, you were kind of on one. <laughs> a wee bit. I mean, um, to be totally honest, that that's probably just me being selective about what's in the book. I don't think we do. Right. I think if I was that, if I was that mental, I don't think I'd ever have made so many records. But um, yeah, I'm not surprised at Riesling. Because <laughs> that, that was the thing as well. I was like, when I, when I was thinking about things to write about, it was like, really good gigs, really good gigs. Mental thing that happened, mental thing that happened. <laughs> and so, and quite often there was a bit of overlap that the mental things would also happen at the gigs. But um, yeah, it, it probably wasn't quite as mental as it, or it, it wasn't quite as relentless as it as it seems in the book. Right. Could you maybe tell us about your, your first big London show? Um, in the book, it says you you you, you describe yourself as trailblazing psychedelic warriors using noise as a weapon to bring down the system. Oh yeah, well that, that was that was at the end of the, our first headline tour, and yeah, we'd really we were really on one. We'd kind of gotten really into just drinking all day and like taking acid, and we got really into poppers. So we're kind of just really wasted the whole time. And but the and the last night of the gig, the last night of the tour was this gig in London, the garage, which was the biggest place we'd ever played on our own. And um yeah, it was a total shambles. We 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 could hardly play and we smashed our stuff up and our booking agent like walked out in disgust and like I had to go to his office the next day and get a row, which is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. You talk about the, the controversy around the, the Blur or Shite t-shirts as well that you made and uh, the fact that you weren't a stranger to like kind of out, making outlandish comments and, and interviews and that kind of thing. Um, and it seemed like a lot of the people, a lot of the musicians around that time, so it was like yourself, it was Nicky Wire, Luke Keynes, Jeff Barrow, a few of us, you, you, you kind of understood that that was kind of like, you know, you're kind of playing the game almost with the, pre- the, the press and having fun yeah. with it as well. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that's something that's maybe missing from today's music scene a little bit? Um, do you feel like you know like that, that kind of idea of kind of putting yourself in opposition to everybody else as well? Do you feel like that's something that's missing? I don't think I don't think it's possible anymore because I just think you look nuts. Do you know I mean because like especially like in like in the Twitter world or whatever, and some people do kind of do it and they just look like they just look like maniacs. I mean, I probably seemed like a maniac at the time, but I definitely don't think with like because if you I mean, you can say something outrageous about some other band in the enemy, but they might not even read it. Maybe someone will tell them about it, but they might not even know who your band are. But like, if you if you tweeted someone, I mean, if I just decided, like, I mean, I can think of loads of bands I'm not a big fan of, but I like added whatever the blah blah blahs, and like just said you're the worst band ever. My band's so much better than you. You would just like insane so it's almost like everyone's so contactable that it's kind of brought a level of civility which mm-hmm. is maybe is maybe a wee bit dull but yeah I, I just don't, I don't think that kind of power would fly these days maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm just old and boring and I've made an excuse maybe I've made an excuse myself to be old and boring but I'm not sure I'm not sure yeah, uh, I looked up the I looked up the NME article about uh, about the T-shirt actually, and the whole article is amazing. Like, if you've not yeah. read it, well, you should go back and read it. No, I, I I saw it. I, I mean, I read it when I when I was writing. And the thing is, as well as like, if you know me at all, 
you would know that I'm laughing while I'm talking. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I wasn't I wasn't famous. So like people probably just thought I was a psychopath. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because they're like, what the hell is he saying? But whereas a lot of it was very tongue in cheek, you know, but it's pretty funny. It's, yeah, I suppose I'm the one that wrote about it in a book, but it's still pretty funny that it's something that's mentioned. <laughs> God, how long ago was that now? 24 years ago or 23 years ago or something. I just thought a lot of people just didn't get the Glaswegian nature of the humour. Like, it's just, we just say things are shite sometimes, you know? It's yeah. not, it's not well, that big I mean, of a deal. Yeah, it's it's total it's total Boris Johnson is a pure fanny, isn't it? I mean, it's just like... <laughs> Same, same, same energy. Um, you talk about in the book. You talk about your childhood love of Star Wars and UFOs. Um, how do you feel about UFOs now? Are you still a believer? You know what? Probably more than ever because loads of weird stuffs happened. I don't know if you guys saw that. The, there was a sort of New York Times article a few years ago where, like, they got all this uh, footage from the. American Air Force and all that stuff. So there's loads of weird stuff. I mean, I've, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's aliens, but I definitely think there's weird things that no one knows what they are. So yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably more, more, more into it now than I have been for a long time. Was it the Tic Tac one from from a few years ago? The one that looks like a Tic Tac. Maybe yeah, yeah. That, that was one of them. But there's quite a few. I think like, I think just through kind of freedom of information things and stuff quite a lot of stuff's come out but yeah there's lo loads of weird stuff it's great yeah it's fun I was going to ask you about your soundtrack work as well I was wondering if that's maybe changed your approach in any way and I was wondering if you ever thought about music in a visual sense before you you started doing those soundtracks I don't, I don't think we did to be honest I think it was more other people would say that our music was quite cinematic and then we we Hearing that, we thought, well, yeah, it would work. And it obviously it's kind of came about. We've got a few, done a few projects, but um, I don't know if it's changed my view of music. It's probably made us, the one thing I think is it's made us able to work faster because you have to. People will literally say, we need this music, we need it this afternoon. You've got to write two minutes of music that works in a certain scene or whatever. And I think when we first started, we wouldn't have been able to do that. You know, it's kind of like, that's that's something we've had to learn to do. So, but that can also be really helpful working on our own stuff as well. Cause you're like, okay, we don't like this bit. We need to change it. And just being able to kind of come up with something different quite quickly is pretty handy. But I, I don't, to be honest, you're really, you're working for, for other people. So when you get back to doing your own stuff, almost feels it almost feels like you've been let off the leash a little bit and you're like, oh, we can do whatever we want. Some no one from LA is going to tell us that we're we're shy. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's it's good to do both. All right, uh, and your your final selection is a track by Cloth uh, called Low Sun, uh, the title track from the just released EP. Uh, what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, again, I mean, when you asked me to choose some songs, and, I, and so recently, especially with the book, I've just been talking about so much old stuff, which is cool and it's nice and it's it's fun to think about the past, but like, this is close to band we've signed to Rock Action, and yeah, I'm really, really excited about this band, and I think this song's 
really special, really, really great. They're, they're, um, they're a pair of twins from, from Lanarkshire, really lovely people, really talented. The music's great. Yeah, just, um, they'll be fun to play.
amazing use of uh, space on this track, I think. Yeah, they're really they're really minimal, and they use a lot of guitar harmonics as well, like in almost all of the songs, which is 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 not what what people do most of the time. And yeah, I think I, I'm really excited about their their album that we're putting out. So yeah, it's it's good. Good it's stuff. A really tasteful track. Low sun, I think, really sparse yeah. and lovely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you've supported your heroes, The Cure. You've played with Dave from Slint. You've shared bills with Primal Scream, Pavement, Sonic Youth. Uh, you've remixed Noi on the, the latest uh, box set. Um, I mean, it must be pretty incredible, you know, uh, collaborating and being in the same space as so many of your heroes. And I was wondering if there was any. Any more to kind of tick off the list? Any more ambitions in that respect? Yeah, to be honest, none of these even really were. I mean, you always want to play with great bands. So I suppose that is an ambition, but they weren't like plans. So I don't really know. If anything as cool as those things happens again, I'll be happy. If they're the only cool things that happen, I'll equally be happy because, as you said, I'm really, really lucky. A lot of those people are people whose music I grew up with or whose music's been really influential on the music I've made so no I'll, 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 if anything great happens that's great but yeah I'll I'll just see what happens and is there likely to be a second volume of the autobiography not in the immediate future but I did quite enjoy writing it and there is some more the book actually originally went up to a couple of years ago and kind of decided to kind of end it just after my dad died so there's actually there's a few things I was I, I planned on writing about that I didn't so um yeah there's there's a chance but not not very soon and yet your dad really comes out as a, as a hero in the book um you know it pretty much pretty much bookends the book as well you know yeah, pretty yeah. Much the first word is, is dad and then pretty much the last word is dad yeah um yeah yeah, I like I like that. I I liked it, and again, that wasn't when I was right. Was writing the book. I didn't really even mean to write that much about my dad. I I I thought I'd mention him in the standing stone stuff, and obviously driving me about to gigs when I was a kid, and picking me up when I was an adult. But uh, yeah, that, that just kind of happened, which is it it is really nice. All right, well, I I can't recommend the book um, more heartily. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, sure. Brilliant, thanks and, so uh, much. Really appreciate your time. Cheers, cheers. Thanks and for a, having me. An absolute pleasure. A, a rock legend, thank you. All right, oh, I love that. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, chaps, thanks so much. I'll catch you later on. Cheers, you later. cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Okay, so that was a little bit of Mogwai Fear Satan by Mogwai, and that was a really cool interview with Stuart Braithwaite, uh, which was <laughs> a bit of a privilege to do. Really chuffed with that one. Yeah, loved it. And yeah. he, he was uh, super cool. Yeah, nice chat. Um, okay, so let's get on with uh, let's get on with our show. So we have um, it's a new music podcast we have for the rest of the rest of the pod this week. Um, we've got three new tracks, as well as Andrew's uh, vinyl word, and uh, I really like all these songs. I don't want to pre-review before the review, but um, have have hopefully interesting things to say for each of these because um, they are they are pretty cool. Uh, so who have we got? Yeah, we have uh, new music from Peter Matthew Bauer, Always, and Eyes of Others. Excellent. Um, so what was there a sort of theme this week, or is this just what's kicking about in your head at the moment, or what are you thinking? Um, yeah, these are mainly just things that I've just kind of come across over the last couple of weeks, really. Um, and uh, yeah, as same as you, really just think they're cool, want to talk about them, and want to share them. Uh, with our lovely listeners. Ah, very good. Okay, so first up this week then is Flowers by Peter Matthew Bauer. And here we go.
So that is Flowers by Peter Matthew um, Bauer. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's our first new track of the week. So uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I was nodding my head along to that there. Really enjoy that track. Um, and I totally love the drumming on it. Um, just fantastic drumming. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll come to that if that's okay. I'll give you a little bit of background about Peter Matthew Bauer. So he is a singer and recording artist uh, born in Washington, D.C. And he's best known as one of the founder members of New York out, art rock outfit, The Walkmen, who, who made you know a, a real string of um, critically acclaimed and adored by kind of cult following almost that they had, I guess, during... Uh, in the, the 2000s and the, the 2010s as well. Were they ever a band that, that appealed to you or do you have any kind of relationship with them? Just that I'd heard of them and seen the records like in in FOP, etc. But I hadn't actually listened to them, no. Yeah, I mean, I've got some mates who just uh, who think that their album uh, Bows and Arrows is just like one of the best rock records ever. You know, they, they just absolutely adore that album. Um, I've always kind of found it a little bit patchy to say the least but it's got that incredible track the rat on it and uh, there's a couple of albums after that that they did uh, you and me in lisbon which i think are really fine records and um you know bauer uh, he played bass and organ in the walkman um and i always thought that the drumming was one of the kind of integral parts of of the walkman sound and um more recently bauer's done some solo records so he did one in uh, 2014 called liberation uh, which has a, a really lovely track, uh, this kind of slowly surging Indian-inspired track called Philadelphia Raga that I'd recommend. Um, and then this is the title track from his just-released third album. Um, and this album started as a kind of solo thing, just just all by himself. Um, apparently this track originally started, he, he was using the samples from several Bo Diddley tracks to get that rhythm. Mm. But then he thought, oh, why don't I just get my mate the drummer from the Walkman in. So it's uh, Matt Barrick is his name. And as I say, yes, just a really kind of renowned drummer. He's played more recently with uh, Fleet Foxes. And um, I think his his drumming really kind of elevates this track and the album as well. And he's talked about it. They, they described the drumming as sports drumming. I guess, I'm sure I mean, that's just because it's just all over the shop. And I'm, I'm not a drummer, but it just no, sounds, like, it sounds like he's very busy here. It's he's very busy doing the same thing a lot. It's a really, really repetitive drum pattern, and it's not all over the place. It's actually just on the toms, so it's just like the sort of, you know, three, like the floor tom and the two toms above, or maybe one tom above, and it's just that do 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 all like like over and over to the point where you think, I hope they used the sample because otherwise this guy's wrists must have just been wrecked over four and a half minutes just doing this over and over again oh yeah that's why it's sports drumming sports drumming yeah i get i don't think anyone plays uh snare on this track hardly at all and again with bass drum as well uh listen out for it that it may well be there but I, i didn't like it was not obviously um bass drum which is really strange because most rock drumming is sort of based around the idea of the bass drum the snare and maybe like the hi-hat or the cymbals to create a kind of three-part pattern that sort of underpins the, the rhythm of the track. And then the toms are often used for, I mean, they can definitely be part of the rhythm, but they're often used for fills 
um, you know, like at the end of you know a series of bars, you know, there's a do, 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 do. you think of Phil Collins, like do 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 do, do. that's a Tom Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, so but this whole track is basically just like <laughs> one long Tom Phil all the way. Um, which is really weird because it creates a kind of um, Fleet Foxes is a good reference point actually because they don't always have full kit playing all the way through through, through the tracks, so it does give this a kind of like really unusual feel. In a yeah. way, the whole song feels like a middle eight. You know, it feels like a short portion of a song exploded exploded out of me because mm-hmm. as far as I can recall as well, it is just two chords. It's just. One chord and then the other chord, one chord and then the other chord, all all the way through. Um, so it's it's a strange, like it's a strange, like composition really from that point of view, and a strange use of different um, different parts of the band because the like the drums aren't consistent, but there's an organ drones all the way through the whole yeah. thing, um, and there's no bass except um, when it goes um, whatever the lyric is. Is it something in the night? Is that what the lyric is? It goes. Something in the night, bump, 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 bump. That's the only time there's really any bass. So it's like a, it's a fascinatingly put together song. It's almost as if someone's kind of stepped back from how do I put together like a sort of rock rhythm section, just step back and just cherry picked a variety of little different elements mm-hmm. and then just put them put them back on. Um, it's got a little bit of the shags about it. You know the sort of sixties girl group who kind of got locked in a room and forced to make music by their dad and didn't actually know how to play their instruments. It's got a little bit of that about it, but much more artful than that. Much more like yeah. artfully done and, and deliberately done than that. Um, but it's definitely on that kind of uh, on that kind of path. So I'd maybe describe it as like deconstructive the way that this this track's been put together. Um, you couldn't say it's like a demo. It doesn't sound like a demo. It's better produced than that. Um, but it does have some some sort of like demo esque quality to it, um, you know, as if like rather than full, you know, rather full drum kit, we just got part of a drum kit. I, I I found this song absolutely fascinating. I have to say, like, I really enjoyed listening to it. And I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm just going to say one last thing about it, which is that the my favorite thing about it was its its general atmosphere and vibe. Yeah, and that's that's what it's got buckets of. So. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Basically, I just it makes me feel something. I'm not absolutely sure what, but it makes me think and makes me uh, curious about about the musicians who made this. And uh, I mean that as a compliment. Good. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, there's something quite addictive about it as well. Something kind of unresolved about it that makes oh, you want to kind of go back to it. Hundred um, percent. Apparently, it's inspired by a childhood friend's sudden passing. And witnessing a surfer funeral on a Santa Monica beach. Um, so oh, right. like, there is some kind of poignancy to the lyrics, which I think kind of get lost a little bit in the mix, maybe. Yeah. But but I think there is something emotive about the track. I, I think as, just as I say, you do, you just want to kind of, kind of keep going back to it and trying to delve a little bit deeper into it. I just wanted to have a bit more bass, generally. Like, I don't necessarily need bass guitar, but I, I just wanted to have a little bit more bassiness altogether. Um, because that's that's the bit that sounds like unresolved in my ears to me. Like it's just mm-hmm. missing low end, really. Um, so it does have a kind of wishy washy kind of tide surf tide thing going on. So actually, that does kind of make sense. Um, and when the bass comes in, then it is really super effective. Like when the bass guitar comes in, it goes bump, 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 bump. I just want more of it. Um, but a, a truly a fascinating track, man, and and I appreciate I appreciate us having brought it in. 
Good, excellent. Yep, off to a flyer this week. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually it throws the next track into kind of sharp relief as well, um, which is also a super cool and interesting track, but um, quite different, I think. Yep, absolutely. Let's give it a listen then. So it's uh, Always, and the track is Belinda Says. Belinda says by the absolutely lovely Always. Um, and I just I love that. You must know when you're selecting that that uh, that is I'm going to be an absolute sucker for that. You must <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a guitar player's dream, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's class. It's class. Um, it's got like loads of things that I like. Um, mm-hmm. You like it's got like a crack, like a lovely little intro trick where you think it's like you know it's a nice little oh, cam intro and then it's straight in you know like you know like a ton of bricks um which is a trick which is used on like sp- like every great rock song ever basically but it just works so well <laughs> great dynamics um so love that it's got um, a sweetness to it. yeah sweetness and like a sort of 
uh, I don't know. I've been thinking about snail mail a lot recently as well. Since since we had we talked about snail mail again on episode fifty, I went back and listened to snail mail records. And there's a definite similar vibe yeah. between that and this. Um, there's some, just I, I think there's something about the interaction between like fizzy guitars and that sort of that kind of keyboard sound or synth sound, which just feels really winsome. It feels really kind of like, it makes me think of the past or something. I don't know why, yeah. but it just makes you sort of feel, feel something like just feel a little bit like tearful in some way. Um, I don't know what the word I'm really, really looking for is here, but yes, oh, it's really good, man. Really like that. Yeah. I mean, it tugs at the heartstrings, doesn't it? It's that sound. Yeah. Um, so if I can give you a bit of background, for always so they are an indie dream pop and shoegaze outfit originally formed in charlottetown and they're now based in toronto and this is from their third lp blue rev that has just come out uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, and it has been getting absolutely insane reviews yeah uh, i think it was 8.8 in pitchfork and mm. all manner of uh, love reviews everywhere else and so many people that are following instagram have bought this record and they're saying it's one of their albums of the year uh, almost instantly so yeah it's, it's it's really kind of hitting a chord with people that, that love this kind of music and um i think it's it's understandable um I, i've been a little bit on the fence with some of their stuff in the past especially the first record which felt a little bit kind of twee faint lightweight a little bit um the second one was a lot stronger and then i think this is stronger again i think it's probably the most fully realized project yet and there's a kind of fullness and a density to the production that they didn't have in the past mm-hmm. um that i think really kind of uh, brings some diversity to the to the tracks as well across the album as well and stops it sounding too kind of semi and uniform um and it's been a long time coming as well. Apparently, there was quite a few delays for for this record uh, because of the the success of the last record. Antisocialites they had to extend their tour. Uh, then somebody broke into the singer Molly Rankin's apartment and swiped a recorder full of demos. Ooh. So that kind of set them back. And then apparently, the day after, the basement flooded and ruined all their gear. So they, they've they've had a lot Jeez. of kind of false starts, and it's really cool that they've been able to come back with something so strong yeah oh that's crazy (laughs) that's a rubbish series puts me in mind of the time that the black eyed peas studio burnt down um i don't know if you remember that story from pop past um but uh the world world celebrated that obviously that wasn't that wasn't (laughs) negative um Uh, yeah but uh, no so this track belinda says i think is is super cool i mean I, i referenced already the nice trick that the intro plays um, but the the artists that it put me in mind of um, were things like Snail Mail, obviously. But then after Snail Mail, I was thinking more like Ash and Charlotte mm-hmm. Heatherly, and I was thinking like a little bit Elastica. So I was thinking like late late nineties, um, you know, pop kind of punk with a little tinge of like metal, you know, st- stuck in there at the end. Like there's a a moment about a minute and a half into this track where they go into the they go into the middle eight section and the guitars become very, very fulsome and downstrokey. Um and you just think, oh yeah, I see where they're going with this. So it just gives a sort of a touch of extra heaviness to really pound the song into into its, its third act, which is really beautifully done. And I think um 
something else this track does, which I'm an absolute sucker for. And uh, anyone who plays guitar will have heard this is the descending chord sequence um, towards the end of the chorus, which is a, a, an absolute hallmark of Britpop. Actually, like so many Britpop tracks do that. Um, and uh, yeah, it just it just works really, really well. This is an expertly constructed pop song um, yeah. that just happens to be in the sort of pop rock kind of area of things. Um, and it's interesting how it's, it's a cool two-piece you've put together here between Flowers and Belinda Says, so track one and track two, because Flowers, like I said, is almost like a deconstructive attempt to write in a pop song, like taking all the elements and then just kind of blobbing them back on wherever they see fit. Whereas Belinda Says is, you know, classic full, full splashy rock cymbal drum sound, you know, bass thudding away in the background, heavy guitars, descending chords, you've got the, the lovely melody, very subtle but very cool harmony going on as well, which which I was appreciating too. So overall, I just think this track is like really, really cleverly done and a, a winner. I won't say genius. I won't say genius, but know that I've considered it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they've done this record with uh, Sean Everett, who's done stuff with Casey Musgraves and Warren Drugs before. And apparently mm-hmm. he got them to, to play all those tracks uh, twice through with, with with no no stops and what he's done is kind of taken them and he's turned bits up and and manipulated bits and roughed things up um so that's what i think that's where you've got these kind of strange and interesting guitar textures all the way through mm-hmm. this track and the album so i think it's a really interesting way of working um i mean the, the title refers to belinda carlisle so it's thought Blur- it might yeah it goes belinda says heaven is a place enough but so is hell um, but I think it's it's surely there must be some kind of nod to Belinda Butcher from uh, My Bloody Valentine in there as well, I think, because it is very My Bloody Valentine. Um, and I, I like the lyric as well. Um, I'll, I'll regress to Inverness with nothing in my pocket. <laughs> so you, you, don't get, you don't get Inverness in many of these songs. Um, no. And uh, the following track on the album is actually called Bored in Bristol. Um, so I think you, you kind of get a sense that they were maybe on tour a bit too long. Yeah, <laughs> def- definitely got Britpop vibes in for sure. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Absolutely. But, uh, um, but yeah, a winner, definitely. Absolute winner, winner. Uh, and again, another good sharp relief from that track to the next one, which is another really diverse and, and quite different track. Um, but also really cool and interesting. So I do like this one. So we're going to be listening to... Uh, well-thumbed letters by eyes of others oh okay here we go
so there is Well Thumbed Letters by the Eyes of Others. Uh, so yeah, quite a different track. A uh, bit dancier, bit kind of bouncier. We were embarrassingly dancing over Zoom video there. <laughs> a little bit. Or actually, I was. You weren't. I was. Um, so yeah, who, who are Eyes of Others, Andrew? Uh, that is the question. Very enigmatic outfit, this slot. Um, I understand that they're from Edinburgh and they describe their music as post-pub, couldn't get in the club music. Mm. And uh, whoever did the marketing for uh, this release is a bit of a genius, I think. Um, a couple of months ago, with very little fanfare, pictures of the record just suddenly started appearing on uh, the social media of record stores. And uh, they were saying, there's very limited run of this, 150 copies. You're going to want this. Come and get it. And there's very little information on the record. It's just eyes of others. And then the track listing, uh, white background, red font. And that was it. And uh, they just got scooped up instantly. And they were they were very quickly selling for four times the original price. And um, an- another batch has just been... Uh, released this time with blue le- blue lettering and having now heard a few tracks I, I scooped one up the other day so, so I've got one so I'm ple- pleased about that uh, but yeah it, it's a it's a release on Heavenly Records so a relatively big independent for, for the release and it's uh, six tracks on a 10 inch and uh, these are home recordings that have just got a really kind of interesting intriguing cool slowly shifting feel to them that it's kind of it's hard kind of hard to put your finger completely you know what's going on here yeah i get a lot of kind of early mute records i think in particular the track uh tvod by the normal with this track it kind of reminded me of that um previously eyes of others have uh, had this track remix by andrew weverall so i get some of uh some of his work that kind of you know, just kind of meshing of genres. It feels like something that he would have played in one of his kind of club nights, uh, um, Love From Out of Space, something like that. Yeah, a bit of Peaking Lights, maybe. Um, maybe even a little bit of like Arab Strap. You know, we were talking about Arab Strap with uh, Stuart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about the, the spoken word and the kind of bleary-eyedness of it that kind of remind me a little bit of them. Maybe a little bit of early beta band as well. So there's, that, there's just a really kind of, yeah, intriguing, slightly odd... Thing going on here but I think musically it's really interesting just the way as I say it kind of slowly shifts and uh, goes through these different stages ends up the, the kind of vocal refrain of Rapture by Blondie yeah uh, but by the end that kind of uh, uh, by the end so yes yeah, it's, it's a really kind of interesting mix and, it, and it, that, that description of um, you know post-pub couldn't get in the club music kind of works it is the, it's the kind of sound of a come down yeah, I think the, there's a reference, that there's a vocal reference in here to I Feel Love by Donna Summer as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I, which I pulled out. And I think it's a, there's a lot of that, like a lot of ideas kind of uh, meshed on top of each other. It's it's a, we- it's a strange old track from a compositional point of view as well, though, because it's obviously using a lot of like uh, repetitiveness, which gives it a kind of dancey feel, but it never really has like a sort of lead up and then you know, big drop at any point in there. It is just kind of all about uh building a, an atmosphere and, and, and stuff. And I do get the 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 
um, you know, unable to get into the club vibes as well. I think that's a good description. The sort of insistent little organ pulse all the way through, uh, 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 all like consistently all the way through, that makes it feel a little unsettling. There's something mm-hmm. a bit yep. kind of weird about it. Um, the the vocals as well. Now this is a very specific thing that some people may have done and some people may not have done. But when, if you've ever made music as a teenager, right, there will definitely be a time when you've like whispered creepy stuff into the microphone um, <laughs> just to see kind of what it sounds like. Mm. And it's it, the, a lot of the vocals here are, are a bit like that, you know, where he's just kind of going tabula rasa and stuff and just like saying kind of freaky sounding things in a kind of whispery, yeah. freaky kind of way. Um, yeah, and- I mean, this, this is the first time I've listened to it on the earphones actually and it's a slightly different experience. It, yeah. it's, it's really kind of, it's very kind of intimate and very kind of, yeah. Well, I've only listened to it on head. I've only listened to it in headphones, so it, is, it has been a bit of a sort of horror movie experience all round. But it's <laughs> it is it's kind of an an unsettling vibe as well. Um, but at the same time, there's something like really innocent about how it's been put together as well. And like the 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 the, the main beat, um, the main rhythm is is sort of like something like you would hear from a Casio keyboard back in the day. It's got a real retro Casio Japanese kind of vibe to it. Um, and some of the keys as well really sound like mid nineties video game sounds. Like there's, there's sounds mm. on here that really, really sound like N sixty four synth, like something you hear in Super Mario sixty four or something like that. Um, which I mean is an absolute like compliment because that a lot of those sound, for there's a generation of people for whom that palette of sounds um, are really like you know really tie you to, to a particular time period and, and um, are really kind of classic pieces of music. Um, so there's a little hint of that kind of video game, you know, eight bit type or sixty four bit type sound, plus this kind of creepiness. Then this sort of clever intertextual stuff, as you said, where it's like listening to little bits of other kind of pop dance songs. So it's it's a brainy one. This one for me, it's it sounds daft on a first listen actually, but then. You you kind of pick away at it, you realise that it's got it's got depth, it's got layers, it's 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 really interesting. So uh, three really diverse, really cool tracks this week, man. Well done. Good, good, excellent. And uh, there's going to be a full Eyes of Others album coming out next year as well to look forward to. But um, yeah, if you see one of those ten inches out and about, pick one up because they're they're, they're going to be sought after. I think. Cool. I think they're playing a gig as well in Edinburgh in November, I noticed. Um, can't remember where I saw it on the internet earlier on, so that might be one worth checking out as well if you're in the vicinity. Um, cool. So that leads us to the last part of our podcast today, which is where Andrew's going to take us through his uh, vinyl word, where he takes either a really, really clever, well-thought-out link or an absolutely tenuous, not-so-well-thought-out <laughs> link to his actual real life uh, record collection, uh, something between one of today's new tracks and and something from the past, um, and I'm just I'm I'm faffing about for time here while he gets his notes together as always, but um, yeah, thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. Like we said, we took a wee uh, a wee break last week, but people continue to listen. I can tell, so um, so that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, you can support the podcast by simply by listening to it. That is the primary way of supporting the podcast. We love it when you do that. You can text us, you can message us on Instagram and on Twitter and so on. We love hearing your suggestions and your thoughts and all that, so so please continue to do that. If you want to contribute financially to this podcast, then actually 
you can you can do that um <gasps> gasp audible gasp you can do that you just take yourself over to www.buymeacoffee.com slash we heard wonders buys a couple of um caramel macchiatos we put them straight into the ongoing fund for um for uh you know production costs uh, associated with the podcast something we actually spent money on um which we used your coffee for this month was paying for the full version of zoom um, because podcast yep. listeners, you will be surprised to learn that we have hobbled through like a year of doing this podcast on Zoom <laughs> without paying for it more than like twice, um, which means that this is normally recorded in like 35 minute bursts um, and then uh, stitched together, but but not today. No, we not treated today. ourselves. Treat yourself. So, um, so yeah, we didn't we didn't want to look kind of lame in front of Stuart Braithwaite, so we actually splurged on full Zoom uh, this month. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Andrew, what is today's vinyl word? Well, uh, this week's vinyl word is very comfortably the oldest track that we've played on the pod to date, and it is related to uh, Stuart and Mogwai. So um, this is a track that Stuart covered um, originally for a tribute album to a musician called Jack Ross, Jack Rose, I beg your pardon. And it eventually came out as well on the brilliant soundtrack that Mogwai did for the Returned uh, TV series. Um, And the track is What Are They Doing in Heaven Today? And it was originally done by an artist, uh, a gospel performer from Texas called Washington Phillips. And Washington Phillips uh, did a series of recordings between 1927 and 1929. Um, just his voice accompanied by an instrument that sounds like a fretless zither. And yeah, uh, a kind of, as I say, a series of these really kind of beautiful recordings. Um, a record label called Mississippi Records uh, put out, put out um, this album um, a few years ago. And I picked it up. And um, this is the title track uh, from the record. As I say, what are they doing in heaven today? Lovely stuff, man. Well, hope everyone has a wonderful week. And we shall see you next time. See you next week, guys. What are they doing in heaven today? I don't know, boy, but it's my business to stay here and sing about it. What are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away? Peace is bound like the river, they say. What are they doing right now? I'm thinking of friends whom I used to know. Who live and suffer in this world below But they're gone up to heaven But I want to know What are they doing then now? Oh, what are they doing in heaven today? While sin and sorrow are all done away Peace is bound Like the river, they say, but what are they doing there now? There's some whose heart was burdened with care. They paid their moment to sighting and tears, but they clung to the cross with trembling and fear. 
But what are they doing there now? What are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away? Oh, peace is bound like the river, they say. But what are they doing there now? There's some whose body was burst full of disease. There's dozen and doctors couldn't give them much ease. But the suffered until death brought a final relief. But what are they doing there now? Oh, what are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away. Peace is bound like the river, they say. But what are they doing right now? There's some who are poor and often despised. They look up to heaven with tear-blinded eyes. While people were heedless and deaf to their cry, but what are they doing right now? What are they doing in heaven today? While sin and sorrow are all done away, peace abounds like the river they say. What are they doing right now?